politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Miniman for a no-holds-barred pursuit of the truth, pursuit of life, liberty, and property. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back here in the house for May 10th. I'm a little bit under the weather, as you could hear in my voice. My first cold since raising my vitamin D levels in almost two years, so pretty good record. Uh, But the two-year-old finally zapped me. Uh, But folks, we are relentlessly focused. Life, liberty, property, what gets us to that outcome? And as you well know, I've been developing the last number of days. That is only going to work through national divorce. And national divorce is only going to happen by making state legislatures great again, red states red again. How do we do that? And we're going to be going through elections, primaries, case studies. Today's case study later on will be South Dakota. We're going to have a special candidate for governor on. Yes, for governor, believe it or not. And it's not the incumbent that you think. It's actually a challenger. Because the biggest obstacle we now face is corporatism. Okay? And this is where understanding that principles don't necessarily change and they shouldn't change, but strategy does. Because strategy has to be updated with the world as it exists, as it evolves and changes. And there was a time when corporations were the bulwark against, you know, fascism and attempts to thwart our freedom, even cultural Marxism, now they are the lead ship in that armada because they are, there's no such thing as private anymore. Just take healthcare. It's all propped up by government, $4.1 trillion in spending we have in a given year, all one big public-private partnership. And that's what we have with everything in this country. It is that partnership that makes red states essentially anti-abortion and pro-gun versions of blue states. And that's what's happening in South Dakota. That's what's happening in almost every red state. That's what Ron DeSantis is trying to change and gradually changing in Florida. And that's what we need more of. But yet we have Republicans that are beholden to them, which is why if you watch very, very carefully – When it comes to the issues that matter in the way they matter and at the time they matter, they're always on the other side. And then when the left gets bad enough and the facade, the golden calves start to fall, they create a new golden calf to obscure that divide so that the people don't pursue the real path that we're pursuing to actually affect change. So I'm going to tie this all together before we get to South Dakota and our uh, guest today. Um, But first, as we talk now about uh, Ukraine, we're going to start with that. Look, basically, with the crippling sanctions, our government perfectly funding a stalemate that's going to cause the most misery, largest supply chain shocks, and most inflation, because we're spending another $40 billion there. It's going to have a massive ripple effect right here in the U.S., It's not just gas at the pump, which just hit a new high. Food prices are even worse. Um, Really everything. Uh, You're not just paying more in gas. Gas is actually the least. You know, you might pay an extra, you know, I don't know, $500 to $800 a year on gas, but you're you're paying in the thousands on everything else uh, because it takes trucks to, to move stuff, right? 
So inflation continues to skyrocket as the dollar becomes worthless everyday transition some of your nest egg to something of a value, long-term value, gold and silver with the market so volatile. We are headed for an era of stagflation with a recession and record inflation. Birch Gold will help convert an IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered account in gold and silver. Get started today by texting Daniel to 989898. With thousands of satisfied customers and an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, Birch Gold can help you protect your savings. Again, text 989898 to Daniel, just like I did when I got my no-obligation kit on how to convert your IRA or 401k into gold. That's text Daniel to 989898. So as if it wasn't enough, Republicans agreed to $13.6 billion in funding to Ukraine. And then they agreed to a lend-lease program where you could basically lend any weapon except for nuclear weapons. Every single thing aside from that. Biden signed into law yesterday. It was nearly unanimous in the House and Senate. And now Biden introduced another $33 billion to pay off Hunter Biden's oligarchs and the bureaucrats and the Azo Brigade. And God knows what else. Even CNN admitted we don't know where the weapons are flowing. And congressional Democrats upped the ante another $6.8 billion. So it's about $40 billion right now. And the only concern Republicans had was, hey, don't tether it to the COVID $10 billion Pfizer handout bill. Vote on it separately because this is too important to play politics with. And their only criticism was that was the process. It's always like that, that they don't want it with the COVID bill and they want it to go even quicker because this money has to go quicker. Unlimited pocketbook. So, you know, Roll Call reports, Lindsey Graham said that it was Biden made the right decision to split it off. They agreed to the Republicans. They're going to split the two bills. I don't care as long as the money is going to help the war cause. It's in our interest. Defeating Putin is priceless, right? There is no price tag, nothing they're not willing to spend. By the way, $53 billion <coughs> so far, if they pass this, when they pass it with near-unanimous Republican support, um, you know that that's a little bit more than what we spend on the entire federal worker pension program in a given year and that's pretty insane i think it's like 46 billion we we spend on that um yeah yeah i mean of all the things we need you could not possibly come up with a worse policy a greater force multiplier for evil it will fund the most casualties on both sides rather than getting them to agree to what Zelensky, by the way, was going to do in 2019 until the Azov Brigade said they had some sort of slogan of, like, never give up or something or no no capitulation. Um, so we're funding those forces to keep it going. We're funding the supply chain shocks. We're funding the inflation. And then we're spending more money we don't have that will induce inflation. But all these GOPers run on, oh, Biden inflation, look what he's doing. And they're supporting this. Ben Sass, I didn't even know that guy was still alive. And he's like, you know, we shouldn't get bogged down on partisan politics. This is very simple. If we want Ukraine to win, we need to continue to arm them to the teeth. 
A clean Ukraine, a clean Ukraine bill will have the votes. Let's get this done. Clean Ukraine. Remember that clean COVID. Don't fund the Kennedy Center, but fund COVID fa- fascism. So they don't. So now they don't want COVID in there. And by the way, not because they oppose the COVID bill. Pfizer is earning record profits, five times more than Exxon Mobil, thanks to to the taxpayer and the printing press. But it's not enough. They have another $10 billion bill to basically fund the shots and, and Paxlovid, which is another death shot, death uh, therapeutic. Maybe we'll talk about that a little bit t- tomorrow with uh, Dr. Finn when she comes back. But they have no problem with that bill. They just didn't want it tethered together. And the only reason they're holding it up is because they want to put Title 42 on the border in it. Okay? You know, to make sure Biden can't end Title 42 at the border. And then even that is kind of oblique. It's not even the point. The point is you need to fund, put those $40 billion and the weapons that you're sending to the Ukraine oligarchs and the Azo Brigade, the neo-Nazis, send it to the Arizona and Texas National Guards and fight the freaking cartels. I don't understand. If this isn't our national, national interest, then the cartels, they're responsible for the death of over 100,000 Americans from drugs, God knows how much from crime and gangs and criminal aliens destroying our country and everything. But you can't get their testosterone levels up on that. They hate Americans so much that everything they will not do for us, they'll do for the Ukrainians. Mitch McConnell was like, we might tinker with the process, but we need to do it quickly. Sort of process. So... They, they can never oppose the thing. Notice, watch carefully. They don't oppose Ukraine, Biden's Ukraine policy. They think he's not doing it quickly enough. They just don't want the COVID bill with it. They don't oppose the COVID bill. They just want to use it to check Biden on Title 42 at the border. And I'm okay with that part of it. I'm not okay with them supporting the underlying bill. But even the border, Title 42 is, is also kind of like a backhanded loser GOP article argument because it implies that you're basically not allowed to have sovereignty except for invoking public health and COVID. It's not title 42. It's title eight, which is immigration law. And even if you didn't have title eight, it's natural law of sovereignty, right? To self-determination in the declaration of independence. It's natural law. You don't need the INA to have a border, but it's always a day late and a dollar short. I'm saying, Title 42 is just like, okay, so the amount of illegals, the apprehensions will go up from, you know, 180,000 to 400,000 a month. But we're already at a record, even with Title 42. It's not like they're going to expand it. It's only, you know, even now it's only used in in, in a limited fashion. So we are being called to fund the neo-Nazis that had a no-capitulation campaign. So they're going to fight to the death. That's what we're doing there. By the way, in uh, March 2018, Reuters journalist Josh Cohn reported, quote, although many Ukrainians continue to regard the militias, meaning Azov, with gratitude and admiration, the more extreme among these groups promote an intolerant and illiberal ideology that will endanger Ukraine in the long term. 
Numerous organized radical right-wing groups exist in Ukraine, and while the volunteer battalions may have been officially integrated into state structures, some of them have since spun off political and nonprofit structures to implement their vision. That is what we are funding. But we won't fund the war against the cartels. That is the Republican Party for you. You will not change the Republican Party. The Republican Party will change you. They will move the Overton window over so you become satiated on stupidity, on the Fox News crack and the conservative talk radio circuit fe- political fentanyl and, and heroin. Ooh, like, you know, they focus on the little, little bitty nonsense. On the fundamental mental issues that matter, they agree with them. Now, one thing you can do, you don't have to wait for Republicans is to protect your computer from big tech and government spying. I was stupid to wait until last year to mask my computer with a mask that actually works, ExpressVPN. Longtime partner of CR Podcast. Folks, here's the reality, okay? Verizon has even admitted to the fact that they collect data um, you know, and everything you do on the phone Obviously, that's how they make their money. That's how we pay for the rope to hang ourselves. They say it's so they can better understand your interests. (laughs) But I think we know exactly what they're doing. Lock it up with ExpressVPN. It's an app that prevents your phone carrier from being able to see the sites you visit and to sell to third parties. It's literally one tap of the button. I'm always very nervous about installing new things. But it it took me a couple of seconds when I did it early last year. Um, you could have up to five devices on the same family plan. Um, not only does it shield your web browsing, but ExpressVPN protects all of your network data. So you could stay private even when using your favorite apps. So when your phone carrier tracks you, that's a gross invasion of your privacy. You could either keep letting them cash in or you could visit expressvpn.com conservative to get the same VPN that I use. Take back your online privacy and use my link to get three extra months free. That's EXPRESSVPN.com slash conservative, expressvpn.com slash conservative. Now, as a segue into our guest segment, I want to discuss a very important story out today that embodies how the GOP is not only perfidious, but they're so perfidious that when their golden calf, their fake opposition erodes to such a point that the people start to catch on to it, and then they're going to demand a real opposition, they perfectly and seamlessly glide in to create a new fake opposition so that you can never arrive at the truth. This is from Axios, very important article. Scoop, GOP heavyweights launch anti-woke lobbying group. A new business lobby backed by the Republican heavyweights is looking to build clout with GOP leaders amid high-profile splits between the party's policymakers and key segments of corporate America. This is, this is very important. Basically, what they talk about is that the Chamber of Commerce has become a woke entity. So the Chamber of Commerce is what has been used to destroy conservatives forever because they pretend to be like people thought pro-business meant pro-free market, but it wasn't. So first they started promoting the homosexual agenda, open borders, um, by the way, uh, jailbreak, you know, weak on crime, all anything, refugee resettlement, anything the other side wants. But they had a couple issues, lower taxes, certain lower regs, and that was it. But now they've gotten to a point where even the fake Republicans can no longer fake people out by working with them because even on the issues – see, as we've been talking about, they need the abortion issue in order to 
basically satiate our appetite for a real opposition and quell any potential op- opposition that arises, you know, either in a primary or a new party. So that's what they use the, the abortion issue for. But that's become such a sacred ground for the interests of the chamber. So the chamber basically has to oppose Republicans on everything now. By the way, the chamber supported Obamacare. So there, so in many respects, that's a good thing, that the chamber is no longer a half-baked subversive force. They're just straight up a tool for the woke left. So recognizing this, Terry Branstead, he used to be the rhino of all rhino governors of Iowa. I mean, you want to talk about a rhino. I mean, that guy's the epitome of it. He's, he became the chairman of the AM Free Chamber, the American Free Enterprise Chamber of Commerce. Um, and, you know, he was Trump's ambassador to China after being governor of Iowa for a million years. <clears throat> its CEO, CEO is Gentry Collins, a former political director for the RNC. And they're the next big thing on the block. I hope to make the case to our policymakers at all levels that we must move away from the trend towards socialism and back to pro-business, pro-growth posture. So basically what that means is they'll ease off of some of the real hardcore woke stuff, still promote open borders, still promote weak on crime, still promote refugee resettlement, and they'll blunt any – oh, and, and here's the deal. Here's the deal. And again, this is very evident in South Dakota. This is the problem we have there with Christy Nome not just opposed to, you know, ending, you know, business mandates uh, on, on, on human rights, clot shot mandates, but she actually is so opposed that she's primarying anyone who concocts a bill to go after them. Because the healthcare cartel owns these small red states. Right in South Dakota. Two healthcare institutions are the largest employers in the state. I mean, that's the reality, and that's not free market. That's be you know that that's not natural. It's because we spend four point one freaking trillion dollars a year on healthcare, twenty percent of our GDP, nineteen twenty percent, to get worsening outcomes every year. So it's like half of it is officially government programs, and the other half is supposedly private, but it's not. It's propped up by government. So government, we created a healthcare cartel because we failed to deal with that issue for 30 years properly, culminating with Obamacare. So now they own us. So even if you eschew the Chamber of Commerce, the healthcare cartel is now a bigger threat. And I guarantee you this new um, American free market enterprise, whatever chamber, is going to be hand in glove, work hand in glove with the health healthcare cartel. So they hope to be the next kid on the block. But this is what I mean when I say the GOP's entire purpose, okay, their entire purpose is to manage the decline, to manage the decay. And you might think, well, it's better than not managing it. No, it's not. I'd rather it be chaotic decay because then people would clamor to either run away, self-separate, come up with a new strategy, but they continue to create these golden calves, these illusory fake subversive oppositions when the when when people become onto the original ones i am telling you you could not get it i mean it's, it's not even they don't even make it tough okay so the he, here's the deal here's the deal they say that you know one of their criticisms of the chamber is their support of esg that's the um 
basically environmental, social, corporate governance, business practices, the social credit score. They take the most extreme things that the left is pushing that the chamber is even on board with now, and they're not on board with that. So they're not going to – I guarantee you this group is not going to actively promote some of the worst stuff. But what they are going to do is actively block our ability to block the stuff. And they'll be on board with the next big thing, just like COVID, just like Ukraine. And I guarantee you, Republicans take over. You can only imagine the masters of the universe are going to implement the next big things. And Republicans, because they are in power, I mean, they're going to pass a bill quicker funding that next new thing than, than Biden even asked for it. Okay? This cycle is going to continue. The biggest thing you have to understand with states like South Dakota, it's not enough to be like, oh, okay. I'm not going to actively implement this here. You need revolutionary style legislators to actively change the policy. The default, it used to be the default we win, they're trying to change America. And you listen to some of these phony conservatives and they, they talk as if that's still the paradigm. Oh, we have to preserve our institutions. Look, they're going after the Supreme Court. These institutions are maggot infested carcasses. We need, we're the ones who need to fight against them. So you go to a state like South Dakota, and yeah, Christy Nome is not going to say you have to get the shot. But because of the structure of the corporate government that we have, with the feds pumping in God knows how much money, and the South Dakota Department of Health being a conduit for that, promoting it in every corner, working together with big health, big education, big corporate, big tech, everywhere in South Dakota, and this is true of everywhere at state. So if you don't actively ban it, it will happen. That's, this is the game they play, and it's true on every other issue. So I want to get to our next guest to really bring this point out. Now, in order to frame this issue, to give you a little bit of background on South Dakota, what's going on there is really what's going on in most red states. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news like I always am. But like I say, in order to get good news, in order to pursue the truth, you have to slay the golden calves. You can't think you have the ball in the end zone. And get the ball in the end zone because you won't get it if you think you're there already. And a lot of people think, oh, we're changing the party. This is great. They'll point to one race somewhere in the country where we beat the establishment. And they'll say, oh, man, we're changing the party when they don't realize that 90% of the time we're not winning those open seats. 100% of the time we're not knocking off their incumbents. And actually, they are knocking off our incumbents in a lot of states. So what, what you're starting to have is, you know – the good news is there are a growing group of people that do share our values, especially in state house chambers throughout the country, and that number is growing. But the problem is, well, with that, the opposition will grow, so these Republican governors are now fighting them. And this is happening in South Dakota. And Governor Kristi Noem was regarded as one of the better governors. Heck, I liked her. I still do. You know, I have nothing against her. I really thought there was a lot of potential there. But the reality is, it's not any one issue. I think we all saw it on the transgender issue. She opposed any bill to prohibit uh, chemical castration. Obviously, the bill last year, keeping men out of female sports. 
But the common thread with everything is corporatism, what we're talking about today, that particularly in these smaller red states, the big business interests that are woke control and overpower the state. They, Let's face it, they employ a disproportionate amount of people. The healthcare cartel is number one. And that is why none of them will do like what some of these other states did, very few, which is actually enforce human rights and ADA and any other common sense anti-discriminatory law we have on the books in the context of the COVID shots. They won't do it because they can't, because they're bought out by the healthcare cartel. In addition, they'll say they oppose mandates, but all it means is just state workers. But they'll never get into the meat and potatoes of the shot. They are out there today. Just today, there's an article out in Just the News, a couple places yesterday at a subcommittee in the House. An FDA official admitted, Peter Marks, he admitted that they will go ahead and approve a shot on babies when even their efficacy numbers are below 50. Right. And if you know, if their numbers are below 50, it's negative 50 um, for what we've seen. And that's totally fine. Name me the Republican governors that are opposing that. To my knowledge, Florida is the only state that has officially come out against putting these shots into children. But you're not hearing that. You're not hearing any difference. And you're not going to hear a difference on any issue that we really care about. Because if we care about it, guess who's on the other side? The people who own the state. So in that vein, Governor Christie has been very public about it. She's actually going after the few conservatives that are in the South Dakota House. South Dakota is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. You're talking about a 32 to 3, three Democrats in that Senate, 62 to 8 majority in the House. Okay, no Democrat elected statewide. And this is an opportunity to really run away with things and have that as a sanctuary for our values. But no. Not at all. The Senate is may as well be a supermajority Democrat. The House is kind of like 50-50. But, you know, a growing number of a couple of freshman House members, especially that have been, uh, you know, fighting back against the status quo. And she is targeting them, working together with the Senate pro temp to target them for defeat. And the reason why I'm so into this is not just because South Dakota is an interesting case study, but this is emblematic of what I'm seeing in Wyoming, Idaho, you know, Nebraska, North Dakota, all these states, all of them, they're, they all have the same paradigm. So with us today is a very brave man, Representative Steve Hogard. Okay, he is, believe it or not, just a House member who is actually running against Christy Nome in the June 7th primary. She's putting up challengers against other people. Well, you know, he felt she deserves a challenge. The voters deserve a contrast. He's a longtime attorney who's served the South Dakota House since 2014, including two years as Speaker of the Chamber. He's been married for 44 years. They have eight children, 20 grandchildren. Heck, that's more than my parents. Uh, Steve, thanks so much for joining us today and sharing your story. Well, Daniel, thanks very much. I appreciate the opportunity to get on and visit about this. And, uh, you know, you're, you're right about uh, the state. It's, and I think it's true across many states that you can claim that you have this big red wave, but you hold up the uh, Republican Party platform against the voting records and you find you really don't have a bunch of uh, red Republicans. You've got a bunch of uh, purple or maybe even blue Republicans. So we've got some issues here. And then all of a sudden now we have the uh, 
the uh, president pro tem of the Senate boldly coming out saying he's going to get rid of these, what he describes as wackadoodles, and the governor is joining forces with him to do that. <clears throat> and so, these individuals that he's referencing, mm-hmm. they're people that have solid voting records. So this is going to shock a lot of people around the country. Um, you know, a lot of people, you mentioned Governor Christy Nome, and they would uh, regard her as maybe like the second best governor after DeSantis. Man, she's really conservative. She sounds great. Um, she, you know, let, let's put aside other issues I want to get to in a moment, but let's talk about medical freedom, COVID fascism. I mean, that's obviously the issue of our time. Most people remember her standing up to, you know, Biden and, um, even under Trump, she didn't, you know, this is the perception. She didn't lock down the state. She kept it free. She stood up to the pressure. She had all those videos. She wrote op-eds really kind of gave voice to, our cause, at least from the outside, that's what it appears. So it's like, Steve, man, what's your problem? Why are you running against her? Well, you know what? Early on, I was a supporter of her in uh, when she was first elected in 2018. And I thought, here's somebody coming in from outside of the state capitol. She has a chance to make some difference. And she, she told me privately, yep, I know who we need to get rid of. I, I share your concerns. We're going we're gonna to make those changes. Well, she got there and nothing changed. And it uh, got worse and worse and worse. And all I saw behind the scenes was Washington politics and this idea that uh, uh, people needed to plan their political futures and just people were targeted for bills that they might bring. And several of the bills that were brought during those first couple of years before COVID, um, they were good bills, good conservative, uh, pro-life, trying to address the gender issues, and they could fly through the House. We didn't have a problem there, but when they got to the Senate, that was the killing field for those things because apparently they weren't supposed to show up on the governor's desk. So you're saying the governor was behind that? Well, I'm saying that it stopped in the Senate, and many of those people in the Senate were supporters of her. So we come to COVID, and, you know, that thing was uh, an unknown for a lot of people. But when you're faced with an unknown situation, what do you do? You should apply your principles and you trust that everything will fall into place behind you if you do that. Instead, the governor defaulted to the idea, uh, I need to shift this authority to somebody else. So she brought forward these bills on what we call veto day, which is the very last day of our session. You know, we ended our session about March 13, 15, somewhere in there last in 2020. Then we came back on March 30th for what's called veto day, and typically it's just to consider vetoes. But that day we we received eight new bills to consider, and two of those in particular were concerning. Mm-hmm. Senate Bill 191, which was going to provide emergency authority to the counties and community improvement districts and municipalities so that they could declare their own emergencies and mm-hmm. shut down as they chose. And two of the, the two largest cities in the state, Sioux Falls and Rapid City, both of the mayors there had committed to the idea, we're going to shut things down and get this under control. And we killed that bill. I got, I got to the Capitol like usual about 6 o'clock in the morning, and I gaveled in that day at 11 a.m., and I gaveled out the next morning at 3.40 a.m. It took us that long to kill those bills and the amendments because they had flown through the Senate, and they got to the House, and 29 of us in the House stopped those bills. So there was that bill that would give all this authority to the mayors and county commissioners, and then there was the bill that would have given um, basically unlimited authority to the Secretary of Health to do whatever she needed to do to control the public health emergency. 
in that situation, our Secretary of Health wasn't a doctor or even a nurse. Uh, so it was a little frustrating to see the shift of power uh, to people that really didn't have a broad understanding what the scope of this uh, emergent situation was. And again, when you're faced with something like that, if you don't have principles to fall back on, you're going to do some foolish things. And that's what these bills were. And so we stopped the bills. We got uh, at least past that part of it. But then on the heels of it, immediately, the governor starts issuing executive orders. And one executive order that she had issued prior to the the uh, veto day was saying that all South Dakotans should do this and all South Dakotans should do that, which is okay, fine. Just it's a should. But then as soon as we finished the, uh, the veto day and killed those bills, then six days later, we have uh, an executive order that says all South Dakotans shall follow the CDC guidelines. All businesses in South Dakota shall follow the CDC guidelines. All, uh, the churches, the businesses, the schools, we were closing down just like everybody else. But somehow the narrative got shifted along the way, and and after the governor realized the political wind had switched, and now she needed to get out in front of this and claim victory, then all of a sudden she's claiming that we never told our people to do anything. We didn't mandate anything. Well, that executive order number 12 in 2020, and anybody can find these on the South Dakota Secretary of State's website, just punch that in and indicate executive orders and read the orders yourself. It says that all South Dakotans shall review and practice the recommended CDC hygiene practices designed to stop the spread of the disease COVID-19. And it goes on to say all employers shall do the same. All enclosed retail businesses that promote public gatherings within the state of South Dakota shall suspend or modify their business practices as recommended by CDC guidance. And it goes on with healthcare organizations and local and municipal governments. And then uh, if that wasn't bad enough, then she decided to focus on the Sioux Falls area, which had a particular business that had some uh, 10% of their workers. It was 400 people, but they had staff of 4,000 people. She uh, focused on that particular business and mandated that uh, any residents within that those two counties within the Sioux Falls area, Sioux Falls uh, covers Minneapolis and Lincoln counties, anyone within those that uh, city jurisdiction within those two counties shall uh, stay at home if they're over 65 or suffering from any vulnerable condition. So there wasn't anything uh, equivocal about it. In fact, the order itself says this order is mandatory for these two counties. And so when she claims that she didn't mandate anything, that she trusted her people and all this, that's simply false. And you can read the words on paper. It's not like I have an opinion that I'm expressing. It's simply the words that were on paper. And that set the tone for South Dakota. You know, businesses did close down. Churches did close down. And and schools closed down. It wasn't for as long as it could have been. Sure. But they did. And so many people, like I say, it kind of set the tone. People were hesitant. Some businesses, you know, like uh, home store businesses and those kind of places, they had national policies that they're following. So plenty of uh, businesses across our area were requiring masks and, and distancing and all that sort of thing. And and even after all that was in place and even after the governor should have recognized the political wind shifted enough that she didn't need to do this, 
she continued to require contact tracing. And so we had the National Guard called in to do that. And they, they uh, made over a quarter of a million phone calls doing contact tracing on behalf of the state for, through the National Guard. So there are a lot of things that were done that all of a sudden we've forgotten somehow. Sure. And and those issues just reflect a lack of, from my perspective, a lack of the application of principles. Like so, I say, when Steve, you're faced with something where it's an unknown, you should just apply your principles. Apply your principles. But but Steve, I so to, to play devil's advocate a little bit here, on the earlier stages of this, I don't think there's anyone whose hands are clean, unfortunately. I mean, I think even in Florida... While the governor certainly didn't get up there and give obnoxious uh, press conferences, technically you did have emergency orders, and it probably had a lot of this stuff. And you know, he said blatantly, "Yeah, it was stupid," but I mean, the pressure was enormous. They were like lynching him to do it, um, and this, and, and they were doing that everywhere. So I, I don't blame people so much, but what I do is okay. You you emerged from that. Let's say a couple months later, you know, May, June, and then heck. A year later, two years later, more in the here and now, where, well, I'd say two phases. First, before the shots, just the masking. Um, is it accurate to say, because I'm just coming from other red states, I'm not familiar with South Dakota, that for an extremely long time, all but the most rural parts were masking children in school? Well, those discussions were had uh, district by district, but I, I'd like to go back to where we st- where you started your comments there. You know, it was an unknown, but what did the legislature do? 29 of us in the House. We recognized the principles of not restraining the public, mm. and so we stopped those bills. We applied our principles, whereas everybody else is running scared. And all the state's duty in that situation was is to provide as much information as possible. And when I asked the governor for additional information, I asked the Secretary of Health for additional information, all we got were numbers. We never got the, you know, if you said there's a thousand new infections today, we didn't know if they're mild, moderate, or severe. And that was never given to us as far as data. We talked about how many people were on respirators and that sort of thing. Never, never was there any clear day-by-day indication of what that was all about. And in fact, in September of this past year, when we were still battling this COVID thing, I asked the governor, I sent her a letter, and I asked, would you please call us into special session so we can at least gather the information in regard to the yes. virus itself and the vaccines? And no response. You know, we could have been the first state in the nation to lead with information. Instead, we're still fumbling around out here in the dark. We have and, no and you idea guys are about in the session gravity of those things. Very little, you know, compared to most other states. And, you know, even other states have caught up that were worse than South Dakota, got better, and they passed good bills. You guys have not passed a single good COVID bill, um, because mainly because of the Senate, and that kind of seems to be the governor's background uh, forward advancing guard there that ensures that nothing good in the house could become law. So my, am I getting the governor correct here and, and your critique of her and your promise to do different like this? And, and again, this is a lot of red states that basically she's not going to implement on her own a lot of bad things, but her health department, which is part of her administration will go along with the same song and dance. And so, you know, you'll have the department doing it 
you'll have the localities do it. You'll have the businesses do it. So she could say, look, I don't have my hand. My hands are clean. I'm not for this. But I don't like telling other people, whether it's a locality or a business what to do. And is it your promise that if you become governor, you're going to be like, no. If you have a federal tyranny that's festering, you're going to fight power with power and use the governor's office, use the state power to interpose and say, no, here that doesn't happen. Is that, is that an accurate um, description well, of the battle line? That is an accurate description because for, for four to five decades, we've been floating downstream with all the rest of the dead fish. You know, that's why the Republican Party looks like it does, where we've got our hand out. The governor was good with uh, distributing uh, or dispersing funds that she, she wasn't even authorized to do. The legislature this year hadn't even appropriated the funds, but she was good with dispersing those funds out to child care organizations. Well, gee, oddly enough, several of those child care organizations had connections with the major health care organizations in the state. So she was good with that. We've become so comfortable with all these uh, federal programs in regard to social services and education and uh, agriculture and all those things. Instead of coming up with inventive solutions of, gee, maybe I could do this better myself and cut ties with the federal purse strings, instead of that, we take the money. And like I said, we received 8.3 times as much federal money as in a normal this year. This year. So it was a ridiculous amount of money that came into the state, but with it comes all the, the strings attached from the federal government, and it's going to continue like that for the indefinite future until you finally get somebody with the political will to say, enough's enough. We're going to come up with our own solutions. We don't need to be fully dependent on the federal government for everything. And that was the issue with all this COVID stuff. You know, you've got a virus that's ill-defined, you've got a bunch of vaccines that are very questionable, and you have a governor that's even unwilling to call a special session just to gather more information. So when you're that compromised, you know, you're just not able to do your job. And, and if you're looking at the national stage all the time trying to figure out, gee, what is a national race going to look like? What do I have to do to get there? You can't get your job done. And I have no aspirations for that. I'm just focused on South Dakota. I just, I know there are great solutions for the problems we face, but nobody's had the political will to do them for decades. So we end up where we are as, as a, a state that's dependent on federal money all the time. And uh, we, we aren't solving problems with corrections or healthcare or social services or education. We, we've, we're great at band-aids, but uh, pretty short on, on actually addressing long-term solutions. One of the things that bothers me about red states is that the governors will often say one thing, but then the departments of health, the departments of education, you look at the literature they put out, the policies they put out, the programs they fund, and they're literally indistinguishable from those in blue states. Do you have that? Do you feel that you have that problem in South Dakota? And what would you do as governor to, to clear out that swamp? Well, it is a swamp. You know, if it, if anything's related to healthcare in South Dakota, it's going to be uh, one of the three big healthcare organizations in the state. If it's related to finances and commerce, it's going to be the Chamber of Commerce, the Retailers Organization, and the Municipal League. They run the show. Our, we have the same lobbyist uh, groups in South Dakota as you have in D.C., and they run the show. 
And it's it's so frustrating to see that. But I guarantee you, if when you start shining the light on these things, the public responds. I gave an, you know, an easy example for me is to talk about the disparity between uh, the compensation for our judges on the Supreme Court, our five judges on our Supreme Court, compared to the university presidents. It's, it's basically $150,000 is what the compensation level was about a year ago for the judges. Whereas the university presidents were making just about $400,000 a year. The public doesn't like that when they hear it. And you look at the the amount of money that goes into education in South Dakota, we're somewhere in that 33rd to 35th range as far as money spent per child, but we're always last in the teacher compensation level. So we've got some problems with administration costs and, and trying to comply with federal rules and regulations. And when it comes to something like COVID, we didn't need to follow that national trend. In fact, the governor should have, one executive order that should have been issued should have been in regard to giving some cover to employees and uh, National Guard members. And the governor uh, avoided that whole issue, saying that he couldn't say anything about uh, National Guard troops because that's uh, under federal supervision. But it's not. So I, it's dis- title I disagree 10. with that. So I, it's, I mean, it's Title 32, that. unless the president Title 10s then, right? The governor is yes. the commander-in-chief, and most of the South Dakota, if not all of the Guard, I mean, unless a couple of them are detached to special missions, they should be... Um, state controlled. Now, Biden could theoretically respond to federalize everyone's, but that would be a very tough thing for him to do politically. Um, but again, I mean, she's kind of in the same boat as most governors with that, that they're unwilling to take it on. I guess my question to you is this. Um, you know, if I thought that Christy Nome were a social liberal, I wouldn't be as bothered because I just say, all right, well, eventually you'll get someone who's not and you'll be able to, you know, fight for our values you'll you'll be able to block this you know barbaric castration stuff in the hospitals that they do on minors and the ridiculous you know gender bending agenda and the whole sports issue and we'll be able to take care of that but the problem is i think she genuinely doesn't agree with it but the the common thread with her seems to be and it was very open with the whole uh you know representative Rhonda milstead's bill the the bill that you guys passed the house but it got stymied in the senate on female sports it's the same thing with banning masks and um clot shot mandates you know throughout the state in that the business community opposes it and the reality is that you know you look at south dakota it's a small state very small state one of the smallest states in terms of population Sanford Health and Avira Health uh, employ the most people in the state. And this is true of a lot of these smaller red states where they're overpowered by a narrow set of very powerful interests, often healthcare. So if your issue is medical freedom, which I know you feel strongly about as I do, how do you break through that? How do you how do you become independent of that if they always oppose Meaning whatever the spirit of the age is, let's say, you know, next year they come out and say Moderna has a myocarditis inducing uh, RSV shot and everyone better get it. And you're going to be like, well, wait a minute, we're going to want to research that first. Well, you're going to have Avira Health and Sanford come on, knock on your doorstep. What are you going to do about that? Well, just like uh, you do with all these issues, you draw the public in, you show them what's really going on. You talk about here's the lobbyists and I'd be glad to name them by name. These are the people that are calling the shots behind the scenes. And when you talk about this stuff, slow, slow the discussion down to the point where we're not ramming this through in a matter of an hour or two for some certain bill. 
but have a broad public conversation about it, get the political will behind the, the appropriate bill, and then make it happen. And these healthcare organizations should not be controlling the equation. Uh, you, we had good bills uh, w- way before COVID. You know, in 2019, we had a bill to prohibit certain gender identity instruction in public schools. Governor's office didn't send anybody to support the bill. In 2019, we uh, had a, a bill in regard to uh, the South Dakota High School Activities Association. No support from the governor's office. It was killed in the Senate Education Committee. And there are several other examples of those things. So when you talk about maybe having a, a social conservative, I don't even see that. And I yeah. had some optimism about it, but I didn't see it happen in practice. Well, no, I mean, in practice, it's not. I agree with you. But what I'm saying is I think it's it's the spirit of the age. It's the special interests support the spirit of the age. So she'll be very quiet. I mean, from afar, watching your legislature, that's what I've noticed. The House, often you'll have support for something. But then the Senate is horrible, and the governor would have to work it to get it passed, and then she's quiet. So to me, there's no middle ground, because if you really supported that, you would work it. If not, that tells me you're relying on the Senate to become the graveyard for all these bills. Talk about the ivermectin bill. I was shocked that in a state like South Dakota, you couldn't follow the lead of you know like New Hampshire and, and Tennessee and some other states. Alabama recently um, passed a bill to just simply allow doctors to prescribe, I mean, they are allowed, it's FDA approved, but to make sure that the state board doesn't go after them, and it died in the Senate. Was the governor silent on that as well? Yeah, that, well, that was one of the people that uh, brought that was uh, one of those that is characterized as too far right. So even though it was a great bill, it just becomes uh, whose name is on it, such as my bills. I could get my bills through the House this year, but because my name was on it and I was running against the governor, you know, nothing was going to survive. And and that's just sadly the So she did not champion the ability for doctors to prescribe uh, the, the safest of FDA-approved drugs unmolested by the state health board? No, because you've end, you end up with uh, the... the uh, political campaign contributions from those major organizations and whether it's, uh, you know, you even see an alliance sometimes overlapping with the healthcare industry and the chamber of commerce, for example, or the municipal league or the yep. retailers, because these people are, it's an incestuous mess. You've got the, the head of the retailers was the former chief of staff of the previous governor. And Oh, by the way, his wife is the secretary of education. Uh, you have the Chamber of Commerce that uh, doesn't have a long-term focus on strong social values with strong families, but instead a short-sighted national political perspective that that is driven solely by dollars and cents, and and they don't even do a good analysis of that. I, you know, each year when I brought bills in regard to uh, transgender type things, I visited with uh, Dan Bishop down in North Carolina. He's the one who brought a bill back in 2016, I think it was, to uh, prohibit the, the transgender competition. And, and what happened down there was it passed. It was in place for about a year. The revenue to the state didn't change. In fact, it continued on a strong upward trend. Yep. But the, the narrative made it sound like you were going to lose all this money. So each year, the Chamber of Commerce comes out and testifies against these things. But if the political wind shifts, like this year, the the uh, NCAA changed its uh, 
narrative on that issue. And so the bill got passed finally this year, even though the governor vetoed the girls' sports bill last year. She basically commandeered the bill that was brought forward by Rhonda Milstead, and then it gets passed. So she looks better on the national stage again. And there wasn't principles applied. It was just opportunistic. And so that's what you see in even in South Dakota state politics. Yep. As I say, it's an incestuous mess with the number of people that have the same last names and they're all floating around in the same circles at the same gatherings in the evenings. And and all that could change in a heartbeat if the public was invited in and show, you know, let's turn on the cameras and here's going to be the discussion on this subject or, you know, corrections or education, healthcare, vaccines, viruses have that conversation in the public and you can make a difference. Because the medical freedom bills, and I've helped draft some of them in, in, in a lot of different states, and I found that the healthcare cartel is viciously against them. I mean, the right to prescribe ivermectin unmolested, you would think, who cares? I mean, it doesn't take anything away from you. You could still get your ton of money from the remdesivir and ventilators and all you're doing. It doesn't take away from that directly. Um, but, man, are they opposed to it. And that's what I, I'm trying to prove here, that – you know, that's not a social issue. It's not a matter of like remdesivir is, is, is left and ivermectin is biblical. It's just, it is what it is. And, <laughs> and she still declined to push it, which really is de facto opposition when you know the Senate's going to block it. So that tells me it really is just about wherever the business interests stand. And inexorably headed forward, they are going to be against us. And um, uh, you know, the next issue of the day, they're going to be against us. So moving on, what are some other issues that you feel distinguish yourself and the agenda of some of the other conservatives in the House that you would like to see passed as being stymied under the current uh, administration? Well, I'd love to have a public debate with the governor, but she will not submit to it. She she refused it. I sent her a letter asking for one, the Newspaper Association likewise, and others she refuses because she cannot defend her record. She did mandate uh, people to stay in their homes. She did require the entire state to do certain things pursuant to her executive orders, and those carried the force and effect of law. But specific things, you know, uh, tax conference needs to be held. We need to have that conversation across the state. It's been 40 years since we've had a real discussion about how we raise revenue for that 40% of the budget that we do pay for. We, we've got good, viable options there. Had good discussions with lots of people about that. When it comes to agriculture, nothing's been done. We're, we're watching generations of farmers leave, and you end up with a bunch of uh, farms that are on the auction block. The yes. proceeds get split up among the, the kids, and then corporate interests are going to own all this within the next 20 years probably. So you've got great what do, what do you think is the cause of the death of individual private farming, kind of like private practice in medical care, where it's all owned by a cartel, very parallel structure that has occurred over the last generation. And now yeah, even international yeah. where China and Bill Gates and, you know, and I, I didn't mean to be redundant there. It's kind of the same thing. But, you know, the, those type of interests owning American um, farming what do you think is behind that, and do you think you have any leverage as a governor to change that, or is that really all federal with the farm bills? 
No, no, that those things could change. the 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 change that could take place is to incentivize in-state pro, in-state processing of all the livestock, whether it's beef, pork, poultry, fish. We even have shrimp production around here, or capacity to do it. Uh, grain production. We don't mill our own grain. We don't finish our own grains. Uh, all those things. We're we're leaving all those profits on the table, and I guarantee you. If that younger generation saw that, man, I could stay in, in ranching, hard work, beautiful lifestyle, but I make a ton of money, they would stick around. The same with the grain production. Those family farms would stay family farms if they saw a profit margin there. But it's it's kind of transitioning. You've got some younger people doing that, but for the most part, the farms and ranches are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And at some point, when that all gets split up among the heirs, it's going to end up being bought up by corporate interests. We've got opportunities for all sorts of uh, uh, organic production within the state. We could incentivize more of the local consumption. We could do specialty food packaging. We could do vertical production. I mean, there's all sorts of opportunities that nobody's working on. Do you support banning Chinese ownership of land in South Dakota? It'd be a dicey discussion, but it's a discussion that needs to be had because, you know, you've got this 30 by 30 program that's coming along like a steamroller. And what we've seen is, uh, you know, China in particular, they own Smithfield Foods right here in Sioux Falls, big packing plant. And if if we'd address some of those issues, that uh, ownership could not be had by uh, those advocating a communist uh, political philosophy, for example. You you could find some way to get your foot in the door on that subject, and it should happen. Otherwise, you know, all of a sudden we're going to see China sweep in like they haven't done, like they've done in so many countries, whether it's Australia or Angola or a variety of other places throughout the world. They just sweep in, they consume the resources, they uh, put in some infrastructure and make these great deals with these countries that are kind of on the ropes. And all of a sudden they're running the show. Yep. And we could see the same thing happen here. And, and, and it's and part of a trend. It's part of a trend. It, it all gets back to healthcare, right? It's the same thing with healthcare that we've done things that we should have never done. It was incentivized by government in the first place through program subsidies, market distortions. But once it's like that, you have rent seekers. So it's very hard to go up against it. And then it kind of is disruptive to change it, like anything, any change is. So another area I see that is with illegal immigration. In the big agricultural states, um, you know, you have the urban interests advocating for illegal immigration just because of part of the whole, you know, Democrat, uh, you know, voter structure. Um, you know, that's all political. But then you had a lot of the ag interests from Republican states that badly wanted them. They, they, they've grown to rely on that cheap labor over the years, and they don't want to do away with it and keep it going. And I've noticed, again, from, from states like the Dakotas, I mean, we've had this for years in at a federal level that we've had representatives that were rabidly often they'd play games a double game but deep down they're rabidly pro open borders whether they would admit it or not um what do you think you can do on that front as governor because i know typically when you're in these meatpacking type of play type of states like south dakota is there's two things you can never get enough of refugees of all ilk wherever they come from and whatever they benefit us and whatever you know uh, safety profile they have and illegal immigrants yeah well we've 
that's been a change that's taken place over the past 20 to 30 years. When I was growing up, and even with my own kids, my kids are ranged from 25 to 40 now, but even my own kids, they've all walked beans to pull weeds. They've all worked farm jobs. They've, they know how to do these things, but we've given away our culture and our way of life over yeah. the past couple of decades in exchange for cheap food. And, you know, you can, you can manipulate those markets, which the government has done now. I remember this. This is a story I told the governor back when I was opposing her on one particular bill that I saw as just being a basic, uh, basically a socialist bill. But I explained to her that my dad and I were going out to the field one time to put up hay. And I remember exactly where I was when my dad said, can you believe it? Now they want to pay us not to farm. Mm. And I yeah, told the, land the governor conservation that, programs. It was the beginning of the soil bank and all those kinds of things. And I, I told the governor that meant an awful lot to me because that came from a man who'd fought his way through a bloody war in the Philippines and Japan, and he didn't come back here for a better form of socialism. And we don't even recognize that anymore. We, we have this, this idea of public-private partnerships rolling off our tongue all the time like that's a good thing. It's the and worst all that of both is, worlds. <laughs> it, it is. Because you've got special interests that can you have put the their greed hands of in the, the private sector without the check and balance of a free market because the government constantly props it up, but then you can't vote them out because the guys with the real power are not elected, right? You can't vote exactly. out Sanford Health and Avira Health and you know, uh, you know Smithfield, and th that's the thing. I mean, it's it's. I call it venture socialism. You know, Europe you have more traditional <laughs> yeah, socialism. Here it's venture socialism. Well, and that was kind of back to the COVID thing. You know, we stopped those bills on veto day of 2020. Uh, that would have given all this authority away. But then the governor issues out the executive order that grants, again, the Secretary of Health full authority to do whatever she needed to do. Well, thankfully, she didn't call it the National Guard to enforce everything. But I don't think any other state probably did either. You might have had New York or Los Angeles where they, they got extreme in some things. But for the most part... South Dakota wasn't any different from 45 other states. We had the same businesses, schools, churches closed as everybody else did. I think you could have driven across the United States uh, during those days and gotten as far as you wanted to. Some states required masks. Some required social distancing. We required all that stuff for quite some time. So it yep. wasn't like... Hey, we're the. Land I of saw someone dragged out in handcuffs. I can't remember where it was, but it was somewhere in South Dakota. Someone dragged yeah, out. A, maybe it was a school board meeting. It was a school board meeting. Yeah. 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 So I, that that really bothered me. I, I remember. And again, it happened in Florida too. It happened in all these states. And I think the point is that that red states we have to stop thinking they're red. They're not. The government, the state institutions, are conduits for the feds. They're obsequious to the feds. They're schleppers for the feds. They, you know, they grovel for, at their feet. And the culture, I mean, the same rainbow jihad, uh, you know, sexual licentious alphabet soup agenda that, that we don't like at a federal level or in California and New York is really embedded in all the states. I mean, the governor of Florida is try, starting to successfully change that, but it took a very, very concerted effort several years into his term. It's not going to happen on its own. And, and my concern is that it's not like, oh, we have to protect the states from the left. No, they already own them. You have to take affirmative action, change the agencies, change the culture, change the personnel, the rules, get new legislation, which leads me to my final question for you. And I want to see if you agree with me. One of the things that bothers me in states like South Dakota is this. Um, you have the federal and state bureaucracies and the courts 
basically on all unelected people that run our lives. Let's face it. That's where it is. The only recourse the people have to redress this is through their elected representatives, their state legislators. But the problem is, in these red states, the legislator meets for three minutes, and then only half of that minute could you even introduce bills because they have funnel deadlines in most of these states and all sorts of restrictions. Now, and everyone's like prideful. Yeah, we're part-time. We make three cents as legislators, and we have no staff, and that's awesome. But my problem with that is that was good when the legislature legislated, and that's the only thing that could legislate. So you want to limit government, you limit the legislature. But now all of the legislation comes from the state and federal bureaucracies 365 days a year without having to actually pass a bill. They do it anyway. They do what they want. And our only means of stopping that is the legislature. So all these rules that were implemented you know, over 100 years ago or whenever now work against us. Do you believe there is a need in Pierre and similar state capitals to actually make legislatures stronger? I'm not saying they need to be there 365 days a year, but the ability to be in session more often, have oversight all year round, um, maybe more staff. Um, we, we don't like growing government, but if the executive branch is yay big, you can't have a legislative branch that's outgunned and outmanned. We've had that discussion for the past several years, and the governor even acknowledged uh, in one conversation we had, well, you're always advocating for a stronger legislature because you think it's so weak. Well, yes, it is, because we meet so infrequently. We don't empower the chairs or vice chairs of the committees. We don't shape policy. We don't get the budget information until the last week in November and into December, and by that time, it's too late to do anything in January. And I had a bill this year that would give the uh, uh, require the agencies to provide their budget request to the legislature by the end of August. And, of course, it got killed. It wasn't going to go anyplace because that would have empowered the legislature just a little bit too much. And those are conversations I'd love to debate with the governor, but she's afraid of uh, the fact that she can't she can't defend yep. her position. She doesn't understand the issues, for one thing, but you get to all these things with a weak legislature – and, and here's something that's interesting. Our state constitution, Article 8, Section 1, says this. The stability of a Republican form of government, which means a constitutional representative republic, the stability of a Republican form of government, depending upon the morality and intelligence of the people, it shall be the duty of the legislature to establish a standard and, un- and uniform system of education open to the public. What that meant was... The only reason for education was you want to ensure you had moral and intelligent people that could yep. read and discern the news of the day and make wise decisions about who's going to represent them. Because we are not a democracy. That's, that's when you go to the ballot box and vote for the person you want to represent you. Then we become a republic. And those, those representatives should have the, the backbone to actually do the right things. And you should have a governor that's willing to use the political will to get things done and have the conversation out in the open. Be transparent. I, I believe the, the public, once they hear all the facts, typically will make the right decisions. And there hasn't been a trust along that line. So it ends up being these backroom deals. You follow the money. You look at the campaign contributions. You look at the special interests. And, you know, last year I looked at the contributions at the national level. The National Chamber of Commerce was the largest contributor followed by Big Pharma, which was only half as much as the National Chamber. So you've got these special interests all across the United States calling the shots, and that's not where it should be. And you've got to have legislators with a backbone. 
Yep, and that's why and, li- literally there's nothing that could come out, nothing that could come out about these shots that will get any of these Republicans to start giving pause, investigating, like, wait a minute, because they are owned by Big Pharma, and this is a huge, huge moral hazard. And, and this was my problem from day one. I was like, wait a minute, COVID is the Super Bowl. This is what we all talked about if we ever had tyranny in the country. I said, wait a minute, now is the time when you need the legislature. You don't have governors and mayors holding a press conference every every evening and just saying, okay, here are the, here's the rights you have and you don't. We needed all 50 state legislatures in mid-March to immediately convene and yes. say, Hey, do we really need to be doing this? Is where the where what is the virus? Where did it come from? Who's behind it? What's the pathophysiology of it? What works against it? What doesn't? And you know, we would have come to radically different conclusions because there were already very good experts at the time in all those fields that had a plan, had to properly treat it, um, you know, medically and deal with it. And they were ignored. And and to this day, to varying degrees, some legislatures finally, finally, 2020 did nothing. 2021 did nothing. Finally, 2022, they did stuff. But your state got nothing, nothing done on medical freedom. Um, final thing, would you support a constitutional amendment to the South Dakota Constitution creating a right to bodily autonomy? Meaning, I want to define it very clearly, that you, not, you don't have a right to a procedure. You have a freedom from coercion of any treatment, medical device, or prophylactic. Well, yes, I would. Sadly, we shouldn't even have to be at that point, but yes, we are. And that was what we experienced with the masks, the vaccines, and all this. And, and the governor she used up like $750,000 worth of taxpayer money telling the public that we're working on this and we're watching out for you. And it was just PSAs all the time about we care about you, but we never got data. We never got accurate information. We never had a special session to talk about the vaccine, the virus, or naturally acquired immunities. We didn't get anything. We got a bunch of double talk, and we ended up with people that were completely divided. You know, you had people that were just adamantly opposed to the vaccines. You had people adamantly supportive of them. And had they had adequate information, I suspect you would have found some more reasonable conclusions on those issues. But we never got it. We still don't have it. And it's it, you're right. It's the whether it's big ag or it's big pharma, they seem to have an agenda to try to funnel all the money and the power to the top. And they have no real interest in solving true problems. And that's the frustration I have watching this for these past years and realizing there really are good solutions to problems, but you got to have the political will to get there. And you got to be willing to punch through that corporatist venture socialist monopoly because that's it. That's this red state gubernatorial game. It's in all these states. The governors say enough to let the air out of that balloon, take off the pressure because they're, you know, the majority of the voters in those states are clamoring for for relief from, you know, the the, the latest uh, tyrannical regime that's going on or licentious uh, play that that the rainbow jihad's making. But they do enough to tamp them down, but not enough to actually make a difference in order to satisfy those interests. And until we do that, we will never have red states. We will never have refugees or refuges from uh, uh, the tyranny we see at a federal level. Where could people find out more about your um, your campaign? Well, then go to stevehaugard.com, and it's S-T-E-V-E-H-A-U-G. A-A-R-D dot com. They can see some information there. You know, some of those websites, you, you say what you can. Everybody sounds basically the same, but I'm telling you that I mean what I say. I don't owe anybody anything. 
And so I don't have to nuance my words. I'd be glad to kind of have a conversation with anybody. I would love to have a debate with the governor because I would yeah. address all these issues and I'll be glad to, you know, come on your program anytime, yep. but, uh, you know, get the and, word and out I think as the much people as need this, Steve. I mean, the people need it. It's nothing personal. People get too personal. Like you do, is this person amazing or is he a bad? Well, she means she's bad. She's a liberal. She, it's not anything. It's a matter of, we have an oligarchy running all 50 States. Okay. That's, that's the problem. Yeah. And we, we have to be honest about that. And, and people, we need debates. Even if someone's not, not bad, it's not like, oh, you're primarying them, like there's something wrong. I, I think we welcome debate. And, and I think it's fine for her to do the same, but just be honest about it. And then also they manipulate redistricting to you know make it that yeah. those guys can't yeah. win. But I think this is good for everyone. Let's have these discussions. What is your vision um, what do you do when you come two generations into a certain sector getting a monopoly that they should never have gotten in a legitimate free market? What do you do now? And and these are and, and these are very tough questions. Um, well, they're tough questions, but there really are pretty clear, simple solutions. And almost always, it's limited government, find uh, pathways for people to actually do their own. Uh, their their own agronomy, their own agricultural profits, their own educational perfection, all these things. Just open the door, let people do the best they can instead of trying to buttonhole them into some sort of a federal program. And it never works, The, the whether it's state or federal. You can't continue to invade the province of all these different jurisdictions of the family, of the church, the schools, and so on. That's Government needs to be as limited as yep. possible. But we can facilitate good conversations about good solutions because they really are out there. And we could lead the nation. South Dakota is a small state, but we could lead the nation in any of those given areas if we just have those conversations. But when when your perspective is you're trying to figure out how you dance around and, and be all things to all people, it doesn't work. And I'm not running for president, so... I just I just want to fix things in the state because I care about what's going on here because I've got eight kids and and daughters-in-law and son-in-law <laughs> and and 22 grandkids now and it's oh. just you know all these things are important and my dad sacrificed in World War II my grandfather served in the Danish cavalry and then he came here to the United States and served in the U.S. Army so I mean there's a heritage of service and I want to carry that on and I know there are good solutions you just have to have the political will to do it. Well, very well spoken. Again, you can go to stephenhaugard.com to find out more about his campaign. And we are way out of time, folks. So send me your comments, questions, and concerns for today's candidate. Let me know who you want to have on next. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. And thank you for listening.